Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this week we have a great show for you. I'm bringing in Megan McGrath to talk to me about working with people with chronic pain and with chronic conditions. Megan herself has had a long journey with chronic pain and has a severe spinal condition. Now, she will tell you about that in her own words, but what's important is that she's talking to us from an experienced place, both as a therapist and as a client. So we dive into some interesting subjects, including how to stay neutral as a therapist and some ways in which we commonly fail in that endeavor. This was a compelling conversation for me because I realized that I often fall into some of the mistakes that she brings up. Anyways, it was a very engaging conversation, and Megan has a master's degree in communications, so it's no surprise that she is articulate and a fun person to talk to. I give you my conversation with Megan McGrath. All right, Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Yeah, so we're going to talk about working with people uh, with chronic conditions and in chronic pain today. And I think this is um, a really important conversation because a lot of clients show up to us uh, in that state. And having more tools and, and, and a better capacity to work with them, I think, only helps us in, in the work that we try and do. So... Um, I'm curious, can you mind telling me a little bit about your journey into body work? Sure. Um, I have been in chronic pain since the age of five. Um, From about five to 35, it was one thing after another. And all the diagnoses I received involved pain of some sort. And it each came with a list of things to do and not do which wasn't really helpful. And so I had been in the medical model for a long time throughout my childhood and early adulthood. I also did some complementary therapies, but never was my focus. Um, that was always a, I'm in a crisis, help me out of it sort of, um, coping mechanism. And then in my thirties, I was diagnosed with a rare spinal cord disease called Tarlov cyst disease. And it was kind of the camel, the, the, what is it? The straw that broke the camel's back. It was the thing that made it impossible for me to ignore all the possibilities. Cause if I wasn't going to take advantage of the possibilities, I was going to end up having spinal cord surgery and probably in wheelchair and a lot of other things. So I dove into my health. I dove into health care instead of sickness care. And, um, in that, spent a lot of time working with a lot of great therapists. And once I started to feel better, once I started to actually heal and get better, I realized I couldn't go back to my regular life. And I wanted to be able to share this with other people. Hmm. And so one of the ways you now help your clients is that you facilitate an investigation into their own body, uh, especially when it's not necessarily a safe place to be. How, how do you accomplish something like that? For me, um, honestly, it's a little bit easy because that was my experience. My body was never safe. So uh, there are a couple things I do, which helps me initially and today. One of those is that I help to my clients to differentiate sensations from pain. And another is to help my clients understand that the things that they're feeling, the places that they can feel in their body, 
there are more places that they can feel than the places of pain. And those two things were really important to me. Hmm. So for the first one, um, when I was in my chronic pain cycles, the only places, the only things that my body registered were pain because I had been in chronic pain for so long. If I was hungry, I didn't register hunger. I registered pain. If I had a tipple, it wasn't a tipple. It was pain. So the neurology of my brain and the pain cycles were crossed. And it took a long time for me to start paying attention to simply sensations and to determine where those were different than pain signals. And I remember the very first time that I recognized a sensation in my body that I didn't register as pain. And it was in one of my little toes. It was such a small thing, but it was the first time it, that I had consciously been aware that there was a sensation in my body and it didn't register as pain. Hmm. What is the technique you use to help people differentiate? Because I can assume that when all you can feel is pain or if any sensation that comes in is pain, it can be really hard to differentiate that from other things. So if you have no no spectrum, if it's all monotone, how do you get them to start delineating and start kind of creating that stratosphere? So first thing I do is... Um, I ask them to describe it using first order sensations. So words that don't have a story. So instead of saying, maybe, you know, I feel grief in my chest or I feel pain in my back. I say, what does that feel like? Does it have a vibration? Does it have a texture? Does it have a temperature? You know, does it undulate? Does it move? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel light? Does it feel empty? Words like that first order sensations don't have a story. And they're less likely to take the client into their history, into their trauma, into their pain, and can keep them present in the present moment and the experiences of their body. So whether I'm working on a client where I'm working in their area of pain or we're just exploring sensations in their body, um, I ask them to really tune into what they're feeling in that moment and feedback to me, tell me what the sensations are and give them open-ended questions of what is this experience? What does it feel like? How can you describe that in a way that I might understand using only those first order sensations? Um, and how do you redirect them from, I can assume that when they start talking about the sensation, it can be easy to slide back into story. And so, that's one of the challenges for sure, um, especially if you have a client that is so um, connected to their story. I was very connected to my stories, my many, many stories, and I could easily go down there. And so what I do with my own clients is I say, okay, let's, let's take this right here, right now at the present moment, and let's talk about how this is in your body right now. How does that feel for you right now? And they'll, you know, if they start saying something and then starts drifting off to story, I just gently guide them back. Okay, and where do you feel that in your body right now? And what does that feel like in your body right now? Huh. And if I were to put my hands on there, where would they be right now? And I keep just guiding that back gently and asking them to keep it to their, those first order sensations. And some clients that are very intellectual, 
I might have to explain to them why I'm asking them to stay to first order sensations. And I will simply say, when we're in this treatment session, we're working with your body, right? I'm not a psychotherapist and I don't want to be. I'm happy that there are psychotherapists around. They do wonderful work, but I'm working with your body. So I want us to stay out of those rabbit holes of story and to stay in the present moment with what's happening in your body. We can't change the past and we can't change the stories, but we can change how your body is relating to what you're, what's going on right now and how you feel in your body. And usually that's enough of an explanation to get people to be curious and say, okay, well, let's see what that would be like. And what kind of trajectory do you usually see with clients? Is it kind of like a, an inverse, like a, a curve that constantly gains momentum or is it, it full of plateaus like all I'm, what I'm used to with, with people working <laughs> in the treatment room? It could be anything. I do have clients where it's like just shoots off and things are wonderful. I have clients where there's a lot of up and down and plateaus and I definitely have some clients that things get worse before they get better. A lot of times building your awareness of sensations in the body when you're working with a client with chronic pain or something that just feels big and overwhelming can make things, it can stir things up. It can make things feel worse before they feel better. And so that's one of the things that I definitely talk about with my clients is when we're doing work like this, when we have chronic pain, your sense, your awareness of that may get, may become greater before things settle. So it may feel like things are more intense before they settle. And that's okay. So switching topics just a little bit or switching gears just a little bit, I'm curious around the importance of being neutral as, as a therapist. What are some of the kind of important attributes of being neutral and, and, and why is it so critical? So for me and in my practice, it's extremely important to be neutral and In my own healing experience, it was extremely important for my therapists, any kind of therapist, to be neutral. Uh, And what that meant to me was not having an attachment to the outcome, not having an attachment to the outcome within the session or within any group of sessions or with what I was going to do or bring or walk away from the table. Um, So when I have a client on my table coming in for the first time, I try to really not hope anything for them. I don't hope them better or wish them better. I don't hope or wish them worse. I don't hope or wish them the same. I'm open to any possibilities because I know for me in my journey, there were times where taking away my pain would have actually made things worse. Can you describe that? Like, Give me a specific example of why that would be that for you. Definitely. Um, for in some of my diagnoses and some of the things I was going through, so particularly the spinal cord disease, if I didn't feel the sensations of pain, I would not have sought the treatment to figure out what was truly going on. And it was a pretty serious thing. It's a rare disease that I was struggling with. So had those pain signals not been that intense, had the other symptoms that I was going through not been that intense, I wouldn't have sought to figure out what was really going on. And I wouldn't have sought to figure that out at a deeper level. I would have just gone along with all of the other things that were going on in my life that I knew how to manage. I knew how to get through and get by with. So had I 
had someone able to mask or take away that pain, I would not have actually made the changes that I need to change in my life. Does that make sense? It does. I'm, it's it's a kind of a, an interesting reframe to to not wish your clients to feel better. That's a that's, that's yeah. a hard one for me to wrap my head around. I think it's a struggle for most of us, and there are times, especially for me, when I'm working with little kids, because my pain cycle started at age five, and I treat little kids and infants and newborns in my practice as a cranial psychotherapist as well. So if I'm working with a little kid that's having some of the you know similar trajectory that I had, it can be kind of a challenge. But knowing that I've come through it and knowing what it took and knowing what I learned from it opens me to the possibility that I have no idea what these people in my practice need. And I have no idea what their body is capable of. And I'm open to all of the possibilities. And what that has led to is is miracles, really, is things showing up for my clients and for myself that nobody could have predicted. If people were trying to help me in the ways that they thought needed to happen without being open to what my body could really do, I would not be as healthy as I am today. Hmm. Because the things that I was diagnosed with, there are no cures for. There is no remission and there are no cures. And yet, all of my specialists have deemed me a miracle. They say, we either misdiagnosed you or this is something that will show up again. We have no idea what happened, even though I told them, here's all the therapies that I did that helped me. They couldn't, in their Western medical model, put it all together in the puzzle that they wanted to see. And so they said, we're just going to call this a miracle. The diagnosis you received basically said that you were not going to get better. And yet you did. And yet I did. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Even with the spinal cord surgeries that they wanted me to do, um, I had a 50% chance of getting 50% better than I was on my worst day. This was the statistics that he gave with the surgery. And without the surgery, it would just be downhill from there. Or not. Or uphill, as you well, have discovered. That's not what he said, though. In his mind, it was all downhill. And the only result, and the only way to put the Band-Aid on was to do the surgery. And it would be a Band-Aid. It would need to be redone until eventually I didn't have enough spinal cord left for them to chop away at. So, um, yeah, that was his idea. And that was the way he was going about it. And every cell in my body said, no, that's not true. That doesn't have to be your truth. And that's what I really listened to. So I'm curious if there are other ways in which massage therapists would not necessarily think that their behavior is lacking neutrality, but in fact does. Do you have some examples of ways that we kind of cross that line? I think um, one of the ways it often happens where we're trying to be supportive is when we, when, when somebody comes to the table and maybe is telling us something, you know, oh, I just had this experience or I you know, have been diagnosed with this, or I have this sensation. And one of the common things that happened was um, to say for the therapist or someone else to say, you know, I know somebody that had that same thing happen, or I have somebody that had a similar thing and here's what they did. Here's what helped them. Or have you tried this? Have you tried that? You know, you might think about X, Y, and Z. All of that sounds like it's coming from a very helpful place. And and as massage therapists, we absolutely want to be helpful. And we want to make sure our clients have the tools and resources that they want and need that can support them. But in taking that away from 
the client, we're actually not being neutral, right? So I'm not saying don't give your clients resources and let them know that there are possibilities, but that was something that I experienced a lot and I see a lot in the community is um, therapists wanting to know how to guide their clients in ways, um, guide their clients in very specific ways. And it's really not neutral. So one of the ways that it happened to me that I was really uncomfortable with is when I was telling my therapist one of the symptoms of my spinal cord disease, um, she said, you know, I have somebody else that has the exact same thing, which I knew wasn't the case because this is a rare disease I have, right? And she proceeded to spend the next 15 minutes talking about that client and their journey. And I wasn't able to focus on what was going on for me. So she basically co-opted my story and made it about her and her experience with her other client. And I see that a lot, not only in the therapy community, but with friends, with family, with other people in the world, that my story, my experience was often co-opted in a way that they were trying to be supportive. They were trying to be helpful. They were trying to give me hope, but they weren't letting me have my own experience. So it's kind of a interesting balance to have those conversations. What's interesting here is that the correlation I I make to that is, you know, when when couples are are trying to get pregnant and not finding success and and other couples or other people ask about that and discover it often the next story is well i heard about my friends who did x y and z have you tried absolutely and, and it's it for for those couples it's a very interesting kind of dynamic where it's one they may have tried all of those things that you're suggesting uh they may not want to talk about it um and go into detail or get advice from someone who may or may not have had children of their own um right. you know each person's story is unique and it comes with its own set of emotional baggage. Absolutely. So, so, so what I do in those situations where I do feel like I have information that may be important for this client, right? I have a client that's saying something. I'll offer and I'll say, you know, when we're done today, I have a, another client who went through something similar. If you're interested, I'm happy to share what worked for them. And then I leave it at that. So I put a time frame around when we're done today, you know, we can save a couple minutes at the end to talk about this because I don't want to bring it into the session here. If you're interested, let me know and I can give you that information. And then I let go of it. So it allows me to still feel like I'm being supportive. I'm not keeping things from my clients. I'm not keeping resources or information from them. I'm offering it to them, letting them know we're going to put that off to the side so we can keep focused on you and in your session and what's going on. And if you want to hear more, if you want to know what's going on or what I've heard, I'm happy to share that with you. That makes a that's a it's a smart move because it both keeps the quality of the session and the focus of the session on the client without taking away your ability to help them. Absolutely. And and it's and it's also giving them choice. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is something that is was often taken from me. I had to listen to so many people's stories of migraines and allergies and fibromyalgia, which were all part of my diagnosis list. And it wasn't helpful. 
wasn't helpful. And it wasn't what I wanted at the moment. I really just wanted to hang out with my friends and have a burger or whatever it was. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, and I'm sure you probably know this, but the, one of the reasons they're they're doing that is one, to try and feel supportive and trying to feel connected to you and to relate to you and, and also probably to make you feel like you're not alone. Absolutely. So it's all coming also, from a good place. Right. And to try and help. And that's the thing that I have to remind myself when I'm in the treatments in the treatment room, when I'm in the therapy room, it's not my place. I'm here to help and support their body in whatever ways they want. And I can offer those things if they're open to it, but it's not my place to push my agenda on somebody else, my agenda of healing, because I have no idea what that looks like for anybody. I have no idea what that looks like for anybody. So I'm curious about how, you know, staying neutral as a therapist, how do you, how do you stay neutral when differentiating between assessment and judgment? It's definitely, I feel like it's a a switch in mindset. So let's use range of motion as an example, because it's something that a lot of people look at, right? If I have a rotator cuff injury that I'm working with, I might need to assess what's the range of motion. How are, how is my client able to move their arm, their shoulder, right? So if I know their normal range of motion pre-injury, or if I don't know them pre-injury and I know the normal range of motion of somebody-ish, their age range or whatever, what it might look like. And I'm testing that range of motion post-injury. I'm going to be evaluating how is their arm moving now, right? The part that I, when I'm in my neutral place, am able to leave out is how do I want their arm to move in the future, right? So it's a shift because I have no idea how their body is going to be able to heal this injury. Their range of motion before the injury may have been less than the average or may have been less than their potential to be. Post-injury, after they've healed it, it could be even greater. It could be in an even healthier range for them than before. But if I am of the mindset trying to get them back to where they were, that's not neutral. And I have an agenda. If I open to the possibilities, I have no idea what healing it needs to take place in that shoulder. And I have no idea what it's going to look like at the end. Then I not only open to the possibilities that their shoulder could come out healthier, but also their hips, their neck, that tension in their jaw, or other things that could heal in the process. So how do you decide if you're not going to say this should be like this, like the, the range of motion is restricted, so I should work on X, I should apply X techniques, how do you decide to apply X techniques if you don't know what it should be? That's where I feel like I'm really grateful because I have so many techniques and, and really great palpation skills is that you go through the trial and the error, right? So if I know that a typical range of motion is within this range or my client's pre-injury range of motion is in within this range and they're at here now, let's just open and see what's what it can become moving forward. So let's try this technique. How is this going? How is this shifting? Not just in their shoulder, but with the rest of their body as well. We all know with fascial folds and strains and the connections of the body, our toes are connected to our nose. It has the potential to impact many, many, many things. So if I'm open to whatever healing needs to happen, 
as I'm applying the techniques that I have, I can be more open to how is this impacting not just that specific area I'm working, but the rest of the body as well. Hmm. And then that helps me to fine tune, okay, look, this is helping this area, but look at what's happening in the head even more. Okay, so let's fine tune and shift something a little bit more. But if I am focused only on that area that I have an agenda for, right? If I have an agenda that I want to get this range of motion to X, then I'm more likely to be only focused in the area that I'm working and not open to the possibilities of what might be happening everywhere. Hmm. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to switch gears again just a little bit. Uh, I'm curious about invalidation. So what does it mean to invalidate the experience of a client and what kind of effect does that have on, on the session and on the client itself on themselves? Um, I think invalidation is something that uh, a lot of people aren't aware of um, whether you're in the, uh, the massage room or not. And it is just common in general. And it's one of the things we've kind of already touched on a little bit is like when you were saying your example of a couple wanting to get pregnant, And then the story goes straight to, oh, here's all these other experiences that other people have had, right? So so that can easily happen on the table when somebody is talking about their injury or their pain and the therapist brings up other people's injuries or other people's pains. So do you have any personal or specific stories of being invalidated yourself? Definitely. I've lots of those. Um, and I would say for a lot of them at the time, I didn't understand that that's what was happening because I knew that wasn't the intent of the person, but whether it was doctors in the doctor's office, um, therapists on, while I was you know, being treated on the table or even my own family, it happened a lot. Um, I remember specifically as a child, my dad was frequently invalidating my pain and I knew it came from, especially in hindsight, he didn't want me to be in pain, couldn't understand it, felt responsible for it because I was a kid and I was his kid. So it was hard for him to let me experience my own pain. So he would try and downplay it. He would try and explain how it wasn't that bad. Um, he would try and do things to, to take it away, to change that pain for me and to change my own experience of that pain, which I understand how that, can happen, but it wasn't helpful. Do you have any last thoughts on this topic in general? Of invalidation? An invalidation and working with people who have chronic conditions or chronic pain. Um, I do. I would say one of the other things that was extremely helpful for me and I bring into my a technique or tool that I bring into my practice with um, chronic pain clients is not only taking them to sensation and first order sensation, but also helping to build the container of their body, Right. So if I have a client who has chronic pain in one area, likely they're hyper-focused in that area and are not aware of sensations of their places. So while I'm working in that area, I'm going to ask, are you, you know, what's going on in your legs? What's going on in your feet? If I'm working on a shoulder, for example. What sensations can you feel other places? Or I might simply go spend a, a part of a treatment session working in an area that they're not typically in pain or not typically aware of just to build the idea that there are other sensations in your body and there are other places that you can feel in your body. So it was extremely helpful for me with one client in particular that I'm thinking of that had chronic back pain. Every time she would come in, she would say, I want to work on my back. You spend the whole time on my back. 
ignore everything else, only work on my back. And I remember that because that was part of what I always said too. Every time I went in for a massage, just, do, just, just work on my back. It's where I hurt the worst. Just work on my back. And I said, you know, after we'd done this for a while, I said, we're going to do that. But I also want to work on, you know, this area over here. And I went down to her legs and I just, you know, spent some time with her legs and really had her drop into the sensations that she was having in her legs. And it took her quite a while, honestly, to get down there and to feel something because she was so focused on her back. But after we spent a good amount of time in an area that she had no sensation and no awareness of, what happened is the sensations in her back decreased. And I don't think it was because her back was feeling better, but I think it was because there was more of her on board. So that hyper-focus wasn't happening anymore. She had just more awareness of her whole body. And that became a tool that she uses. And it's a tool that I teach all of my clients. If I have somebody, I have a, a young 16-year-old client that comes in for concussions, chronic concussions. Chronic is and he's had like six or seven. Um, and when he gets migraines, the best thing that he's learned to do is to start feeling his feet and his legs. And he spends a lot of time feeling the sensations of his feet and his legs. And he now is to the point where he's feeling each individual toe. So it gets him out of his head and out of that pain place and into a place that basically just makes, gets more of him on board so that he's not a hundred percent pain. He's now got his legs and feet. So, you know, that's a good chunk of, of stuff. He still has his pain place, but he's got a lot of, of uh, a lot more of him available. And that's been huge in, in, in being able to shift his pain scale and being able to shift his experience of pain and in being able to um, just function in daily life. Now he can function with migraines, whereas before he would have to lock himself in a room for four days. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a major success. I'm curious if you have any major failures that you'd like to share, because I've been asking this question to a lot of, a lot of my guests and uh, I think we have a lot to learn from our failures and I'm curious if you have one you'd like to share. Um, I think that, um, I think honestly, the biggest failure that I've had was a failure to all of my clients in failing in myself. So I knew because I started into this practice coming from a place of chronic pain and healing that I had to take care of myself before I could take care of everyone else. And I did that really well for about two years. And then I kind of lost sight of that. And I kind of stopped doing the things that I knew I needed to do to take care of myself, the exercises I needed and eating right and sleeping right. And what I noticed was that I was putting far more into my time at the table, far more energy, and the outcomes were less and less. I was less able to be present with my clients. I was less able to hold space for them, less able to deal with some of the stuff coming up on the table because I wasn't taking care of myself. So I saw that in myself, but I also saw that in how my clients are responding to treatment. Once I realized that and started to change my practices and get things back on board, I did see my clients responding much better and I became, you know, healthier at it too. Um, But that was a huge learning lesson. And it took me, honestly, it took me too long to notice that I was not taking care of myself and that it was coming across in my treatments. That my clients were kind of suffering for it. Hmm. 
And yeah. how quick was that turnaround? Was it very fast or did it take a couple of months? Um, for me, the recognition that it was happening was fast. Um, changing what I was doing in the treatment sessions was fast. Deciding to change that at home so that I could walk into the treatment sessions ready to go, that, that took a while. Um, it took a lot of, you know, I had to get on the table and do some work myself about why, you know, was I trying to sabotage or what was going on um, for myself to figure out where is this coming from? You know, I did really well and then it fell off and I can be really present and on in the sessions. And how can I also do that in the rest of my life? Yeah. So that part, I think, was the longer lasting. It took longer for me to get there. Lessons come in all shapes and sizes and they they take their time working their way through us. They do. <laughs> well, very good. Well, before I let you go, do you have any questions for me? Um, have you told everybody your largest failure? Uh, I have told, uh, there was one guest I had on who asked me, it's actually a, a couple of guests there. Their names were Bryn and Lorene and they, they asked me what my, my most memorable failure was. And the failure I came up with in that moment was the one that I had been sharing with my students at most recently. And that was a three separate instances of failure to drape properly and what I learned from each one. Uh, because cool. each each one had its own kind of separate lesson uh, to teach me and uh, and to teach my students. So, yeah, that's good. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. good. I'm lucky. I don't have to often. I don't often have to deal with draping because my clients are fully clothed on the table, unless they're coming in for a massage or a raindrop or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's. Uh, and and draping serves many reasons, and and, and dra- I, I, draping can even happen when they're fully clothed. I mean, sometimes oh, yeah. even having a blanket uh, counts as a drape over clothes, Definitely. and, and uh, depending on the client you're working with, that can be in a very important boundary. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me, Megan. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and review it on iTunes. And if you have any questions that you had wished I had asked or topics you want me to cover in the future, please visit the website at www.housethepressure.com where you can send me an email and hopefully I can include it. Until next time, be good and be well.